Welcome to our Mindfulness Podcast. Each week or so, we will have a different podcast, different speakers, different chants, different Dharma talks. But mindfulness practice in Buddhism helps us focus and helps us be aware. And this program will consist of many different ways of meditating. And so we will be getting underway today with our program. The idea of self is very pronounced and insidious, and it's a very hard concept to not affect your worldview. So even though I don't really think there's a John Turner essence, I still kind of think there's a John Turner CEO. There's someone in my mind that's kind of controlling what I think about. There's kind of an air traffic controller in my head that's in charge of my thoughts. And the scary thing is, is when you meditate, you have waves of emotion that come over you, And there really is no input. That's the other scary part. You're sitting in a quiet room. It's very peaceful. Incense are burning. And suddenly you feel very anxious. And you start to sweat. And then you get frustrated and angry. And then you get incredibly bored. And then there's a ticking noise that's driving you mad. And these emotions, you don't think about thinking about those things. They just come into your mind without any sense of intention. So what we're doing is is we're developing kind of an inner awareness of how we're thinking and feeling. In Buddhism, there is kind of a sense of two minds. There's the monkey mind and there's the background mind that's kind of aware and embraces and sees. We try to maybe pull those two apart because the monkey mind overwhelms the mind that's aware and that just sees things as they are. And one scholar said that this consciousness, this background It's like a blank movie screen, is Amida Buddha. That's what Amida Buddha is. It's the mind that accepts all things as they are without judgment. So this is the Buddhist background for this article. Over the past three years, I've had one major goal in my personal life, to stop being so angry. Anger has been my emotional currency. I grew up in an angry home, door slamming and phone throwing were basic means of communication. I brought these skills to my 20-year marriage. Why are you yelling at me? My husband would say. I'm not yelling, I'd retort. Oh wait, on second thought, you were right. I'm yelling. Then three years ago, an earthquake hit our home. We had a baby girl, and all I wanted was the opposite. I wanted her to grow up in a peaceful environment, to learn other ways of handling uncomfortable situations. So I went to therapy. I kept cognitive behavioral therapy worksheets. I took deep breaths, counted to 10, and walked out of rooms. I even meditated at night. These strategies helped me manage the anger, but they never really decreased it. It was like keeping a feral horse in a barn. I was contained, but not really domesticated. Then, six months ago, I was talking with Lisa Feldman Barrett, a psychologist at Northeastern University. Right at the end of the hour-long interview, she tossed out this suggestion. You could increase your emotional granularity. My emotional what? Go learn more emotion words and emotion concepts from your culture and other cultures, she added. Over the past 30 years, Feldman Barrett has found evidence that anger isn't one emotion, but rather a whole family of emotions. And learning to identify different members of the family is a powerful tool for regulating your anger, studies have shown. Anger around the world. What you feel when you're angry depends on the situation. 
what your past experiences are, and how your culture has taught you to respond, she says. As a result, there is actually enormous variation in the types of anger in the United States, like exuberant anger when you're getting pumped up to compete in sports, or sad anger when your spouse or boss doesn't appreciate you. When you look at other cultures, the variations explode. Germans have a word that roughly means a face in need of a slap. It's like you're so furious with someone that you look at their face, and it's as if their face is urging you to punch them, Feldman Barrett says. It's a great emotion. Ancient Greeks differentiate between a short-term anger that doesn't stick around with a long-term lasting anger that's permanent. Mandarin Chinese has a specific word for anger directed toward yourself. It's literally a combination of regret and hate, says linguist Yao at Hong Kong Polytechnic University. So I didn't look this up, but what happens is I've talked about compounds before, like self-power and other power. I would bet that that first character is regret. The second character is hate. And that's the word for anger. That compound is the word for anger. And this is why we can't really translate Chinese compounds literally, right? You regret something you did so much that you're angry at yourself, she says. Thais have at least seven degrees of anger, says linguist at the University of Hawaii. We don't walk around saying, I'm angry, that's too broad, she says. We may start with, I'm displeased, and I'm dissatisfied, and then increase the intensity, she says. And India is a treasure trove of angers. There is a common form of anger, which means like when eggplant hits the hot oil. Who says Abhijit Paul, who teaches South Asian literature at Middlebury College. So we've discussed this before. This thing about not having a lot of granularity is really pronounced in English in America. We have words, but they tend to be fairly extreme and dualistic. Like I've told you before, you can have a friend or a lover, but we don't have a lot of words in between. Or you could love, you could like, you could hate, but we don't have a lot of nuanced words. So supposedly, that makes English the preferred language for law and science, but it's not that great for poetry. It's difficult uh, for the, these granular shades of emotion or nuance. So you would say that English is not as nuanced a language as perhaps Chinese is. So when you look up a kanji character in a kanji dictionary, it's really kind of shocking because it'll have 13 different words, right? It's like Sesame Street. They're not the same words. They really move a lot, a huge variance. And the way Chinese people know what you mean is by context, by facial expression and tone of voice. So it makes the language difficult. And I asked, a, I have a lot of Chinese friends when I worked as a programmer, I asked them, well, how do you know which one of these 13 definitions to use when you're listening to someone? And he looked at me and smiled and he said, we just know. I'm like, what does that mean, we just know? But you know, if you grow up in a language and you're a native speaker, you just know. You suddenly become like really angry at hearing something shocking or learning something that you really, really dislike, Paul says. Indians also differentiate between political anger, which you have for the ruling class or the boss man, and personal angers, which you would have for a friend, family, or neighbor. You would never mix the two and express political anger in a personal relationship, Paul says. So I thought that was interesting, right? We're, we have political anger bleeding into personal anger right now. And I've read a lot of stories about 
families that aren't, they're not meeting for Thanksgiving anymore because it's a serious problem. There's a couple family members that are super pro-Trump and there's a couple family members who are still super pro-Hillary and they just have decided that it's best not to be together. And so that this has been a real problem. There's also a very interesting anger that is a loving anger, Paul says. You express this emotion toward a spouse when your spouse has angered you, but you can't help them. Only love them, he says. It's a mist bag of love, grief, sorrow, and anger. Personalize anger to help regulate it. So in many ways, anger is like wine. There are these major varieties, such as Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, but each vintage has its own unique combination of aromas, flavors, and potency. The more you practice, the more you practice you have at detecting and naming these nuances, the better you understand wine. And if you learn to detect all the various flavors and nuances of anger and label them, you can start to handle your anger better, says psychologist Maria Gindram at Yale University. There's definitely emerging evidence that just the act of putting a label on your feelings is a really powerful tool for regulation, Gendron says. It can keep the anger from overwhelming you. It can offer clues about what to do in response to the anger. And sometimes it can make the anger go away. So I think by labeling it, you can figure out the source of your anger. Because sometimes you're just pissed off and you don't know why. And so that's a big help. The idea is to take a statement that's broad in general, such as, I'm so angry, and make it more precise. Take the Thai, I'm displeased, or the German, Backfiefengeist. That's pretty good. Not knowing any German, I think that I did really good on that. Psychologists call this strategy emotional granularities. Studies show that the more emotional granularity a person has, the less likely they are to shout or hit someone who has hurt them. They are also less likely to binge drink when stressed. On the other hand, people diagnosed with major depressive disorder are more likely to have low emotional granularity compared to healthy adults. There's a whole arm of research showing how functional it is to have finely tuned categories for our experiences, Gendron says. So this is kind of a fancy way of being self-aware. It's being mindful and self-aware. Emotional granularity is like watching HD TV versus watching regular TV. It lets you see your anger with higher resolution, Gendron says. It gives you more information about what that anger means, whether you value that experience and choices about what to do next, she says. The last part is key. Being granular with your anger helps you figure out what's the best way to handle the situation or whether you should do anything at all. For instance, if you're feeling a quick burst of anger, which you know will fade rapidly, then maybe doing nothing is the best strategy. And you don't have to limit yourself to the labels that already exist, Gendron says. Be creative. Analyze what's causing your various angers. Give them specific names and start using the terms with family and coworkers. Now this might really irritate people if you say, oh, you're being back in Slackenglaced. That, that, that might not work. But I do this a lot at home. If I start to get angry at someone, there's kind of a Buddhist technique of saying that like in a week, you won't even remember this. Like in a week, it'll be so far in your rearview mirror, you will completely forgot about it. So do you really want to ruin the day? And Linda and I do this a lot. Like the only time we have words with one another is when we're tired or hungry. And so 
they're not really fights, right? We're just, we're just hungry. And there's no point in ruining the whole evening just because we haven't eaten dinner yet. And so we're very aware of that. And we look at each other and say, we're hangry. We're not angry. We need to eat. And then the evening's wonderful. If you're making a practice in your family of coming up with words and using them together, that actually can regulate physiology, she says. That can resolve the kind of ambiguity about the situation. Personally, I found this strategy the most helpful. I started paying attention to what typically triggers my anger at work and at home, and I found three major types which I named. Illogical anger. This emotion happens when somebody at work makes a decision that seems completely illogical. Once I labeled this anger and started tracking what happens afterwards, I quickly realized that trying to convince an illogical person of logic is often futile and a waste of time. Hurry up anger. This is the anger I feel when someone else is not doing something fast enough. Yes, I'm talking about the driver of the gray Prius at the stoplight this morning, or the three-year-old who will not put her shoes on fast enough. Once I labeled it, I realized the cars, people, and toddlers eventually move. Huffing and puffing doesn't make it any faster. Dysonophis anger. This is my favorite anger and has the biggest impact on my life. I wanted to figure out how to decrease yelling at our house, so I started paying attention to what often occurred right before the screaming began. It was super obvious. The dog was barking and the toddler was screaming, basically two loud sounds simultaneously. So my husband and I made up dysonophis, anger, from the Latin for two sounds. Now when my husband says, I have dysonophis, anger, Micheline, we know exactly what to do. Put the dog on the porch and pick up the baby. And I know he's not angry at me. He just wants some peace and quiet. Another thing, too, about figuring out what you're angry about is I think it helps in relationships if you're clear about why you're upset and you can discuss it. I went to an obsessive compulsive seminar and I found out that one of my relatives is an orderer. They like things to be ordered. And then there's checkers. And then there's germaphobes. And then there's people who, I guess, don't have anything. As I was listening to the person talk, I realized my friend was an orderer and that I'm a checker. And we get along well because I check things, but they're already where they're supposed to be. So we work well with each other. I also discovered that you can be functional. Everybody is on the continuum of these things. You might be somewhat of a sorter or somewhat of an orderer, but as long as you stay calm and you're not stressed, you remain highly functional. So I did check my backpack three or four times today to make sure I had my computer, but I don't get to church at eight o'clock and say, did I turn off the coffee? I gotta drive back home and check the coffee. It doesn't disrupt my day. It's not overwhelming. And so in being a checker to some point is actually highly desirable. A good minister doesn't forget his dharma talk at home, right? You don't forget your robes. So as long as it's at a safe level, and I'm aware of it, it's actually a very important asset. But if it goes too far, you know, you never get out of the house, right? You can't get to church because you're constantly checking things. And I like this essay, too, because none of it's negative. None of this is negative. These are normal feelings that need to, you just need to be aware of and, and manage them properly. Thank you very much. Please join me in Gosho. 
Namandats, 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 Namandats. This concludes this podcast. I hope you feel grounded. I hope you feel different than when you began. And this feeling you have, I hope you take it with you out into your everyday life. It's important to develop these qualities in a controlled environment like this podcast. But the aim is for the effects to begin to bleed out into your everyday life naturally. My wife once sent me a meme on Facebook that said, yoga works, but only if you show up. And I feel that way about Buddhism and about meditation. It surely works, but only if you stick with it. And you have to get to the point where it becomes something natural and effortless in your life. And if you have high expectations and you're trying to rush the process, you actually retard your ability to change over time. You don't want to grasp it. You don't want to hang on to it. You just want to experience it in a regular practice and integrate it into your everyday life. So thank you very much for coming. I will close with Kasho. Hands together and we will bow. For access to more content, please visit our YouTube channel by searching for the Orange County Buddhist Church. There's over 40 different videos, all about 15 to 20 minutes each, from Dharma Talks and Adult Study given on Sundays at the Orange County Buddhist Church by various ministers. Please attend online. This program was performed by Rev. John Turner. Executive Producers, Rev. Marvin Harada and Jim Scott. Produced by the Buddhist Education Center of Orange County Buddhist Church, Anaheim, California, USA. Directed and engineered by Rev. John Turner. Edited by Jim Scott. This program includes excerpts from Time Stood Still by Riley Lee, used with permission. This program is copyright 2020, Orange County Buddhist Church, Anaheim, California, USA. All rights reserved. We hope you'll join us for future podcasts, or please check out our Buddhist online program at everydaybuddhist.org. Our website is ocbuddhist.org. There are Dharma messages that you can read on the website, and the online program has a number of Buddhist education courses from introductory level to the study of Buddhist texts. If you've never attended one of our meditation services, we are located at 909 Southdale Avenue, in Anaheim. Thank you for joining us today.